It is a joyous Sunday morning, isn't it? To be able to come together to appreciate this type of an assembly and to do so under the banner of statements like, This is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Anytime we can assemble in the name of the God of heaven, it's a joyous moment. It's a time of encouragement for us, but more significantly, it's a time to adore and honor the God that made us, the God that sent His Son, and the God, of course, that holds in promise for those that are faithful that marvelous and eternal abode to which we so joyously look. We come together this day, this second Sunday in April this year, a day in which we will, for the next few moments, reflect upon a text that was just read in our hearing. Would you please be turning to 1 Corinthians 15, and we will reflect upon the first four verses of that chapter over the course of our study time this morning. While you're turning to that particular location, I would, in fact, add one small additional statement as a part of the announcements that Brother Lester brought before us a moment ago, having to do with that gospel meeting. That's four weeks from today, in which that's the opening Sunday, the opening service, if you please. We want to invite one and all to certainly make arrangements. Clear your calendar. Be with us during the course of that week, Sunday through Wednesday. The service is on Sunday at the times of 9.30 and 10.30, as we'll start the things off that morning. 7 o'clock during Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I think our elders still making some decisions. Uh, usually we have some things that uh, will have to be a bit different this year due to the ongoing construction project, but we'll have to uh, perhaps give some more details about the remainder of the Sunday times. You may be wondering about the speaker. Brother Glenn Colley has, uh, it, it will be the one conducting that meeting for us this year. You may be somewhat familiar with his efforts. Uh, well-known person in terms of his preaching. He preaches for the West Huntsville congregation in Huntsville, Alabama. And we look forward very much to him being with us during the course of that meeting. A review of the gospel. That's the title I gave to the lesson this morning. And as you and I may have noted in that text of 1 Corinthians 15, I suppose if we were to at least ask questions under the mention of the word gospel, what words first come to mind? What might you and I think about? If you just ask an ordinary person who is an acquaintance of yours what they first think of when you mention the word gospel, I suspect you'd get many different possible answers. Some people might think church. Others might think Bible. Maybe others think about sin. Maybe others think about something else that might be related to either the Bible or something connected to Jesus. But you know, it would be a fair thing to ask, since the gospel does occupy such a pivotal place and such a dramatic role, why don't we review it this morning? So I hope you and I can embed in our thinking some things we can always share with people when they at least make mention of what is the gospel what does it involve? What things correlate to it? On that slide, I've invited you to notice at the bottom that question, so what is it? Allow me to read again, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, 
how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And those four verses, you may notice one of the first words in the opening verse of that reading was the word gospel. And then in the statements that followed it, we have an elaboration, a definition, and a presentation of that which is the gospel. As I transition to this next slide then, what I will propose we do today, let's step through those verses one by one, and let's make various comments out of each one of them and draw a powerful set of ideas and conclusions that cement in our appreciation what the gospel is. First of all, in verse number 1, Paul rather clearly pointed out in the opening statements of that verse, I declare unto you the gospel. Here's our word. Paul points out to the Corinthian brethren, this is what I have delivered, I proclaimed, I preached. It is that which is known as the gospel. May I point out to each of us, perhaps by reminder, that the word gospel literally from the original language carries the thought of good news. It carries the understanding of glad tidings. May I offer the thought we need some good news. Perhaps you in your personal life, and certainly we as a world community, we always need to delight in some good news. And may I offer us the thought that we have it. There is no greater news than this. There is no more wonderfully positive news than this. To the ancient Corinthians, Paul says, I declare this gospel to you. In the matter of that gospel, could I point out that this word occurs rather often in the Bible, some 76 times in the New Testament, and isn't that a reminder that not only was it at Corinth, but yea, so many other places in which they too were blessed to hear, to receive, and to make note of the gospel. May I say that this community in Putnam County is no different. We too are blessed. We too have access to and powerful appreciation of that which is the gospel. But not only that, look at what's next on the slide. You and I would quickly remember it's not as if this is anything different than what Jesus had said. In Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus rather directly with a nail-pierced hand pointed to those apostles and said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So you see, when Paul brought it to Corinth, he wasn't doing anything different than what the Lord had in mind. You go everywhere and you preach. What? The gospel. This is the message. It was not critical to preach popular science, National Geographic, Aesop's fables, or anything else. What was the most needful message for that time and ours as well is nothing else than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The next point on that slide that again rings with such power and majesty as you and I think about this before us. When the gospel came to Corinth, and the record is given to us in Acts 18, how did they receive it? You might want to etch in your appreciation statements like this one. Many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. That is to say, when Paul brought the gospel to the, to, 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 to the Corinthian people and declared it with such directness to them, many of them heard it, they believed it, and they obeyed it in the act of baptism. That surely shines a bright spotlight upon the reception of some of them with respect to that gospel. 
one last thing on that slide then would be this. It connects to the final statement of verse number 1. It says, which also ye have received, and wherein you stand. There is something to be said about the way in which you and I choose to stand. What is it that fortifies us and allows us in position to withstand the onslaught of particular challenges and sometimes terrors that may come our way? Sometimes those have to do with our spiritual allotment. Sometimes it can be physical manifestations in life. What is it that you and I stand in? What anchors your life? What is it that provides you a foundation that's immovable? May I offer the thought? The Corinthians were standing in the gospel. You and I would do wise to do the same. Because the things of man, they slide and they move. And they're that sand the Lord spoke of in Matthew 7, verses 24 and following. It's a sand that won't withstand, you see, things sturdily built upon it. The Corinthians ought to be commended in that light. They were standing. Didn't Paul say in Ephesians 6, verse 10, Having done all, that you may stand. It is with that said. What about the next verse? So verse 1 has prepared us by way of reminder that the gospel is what had been presented to them. But could I point out, he still hadn't identified what it is. We know he'd preached it and we know he'd proclaimed it and declared it, but what is it? Let's look at verse 2, shall we? Verse 2 again reads, "...by which also you're saved." If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Initially and almost immediately, we are reminded that it's the gospel that brings salvation. This is the message that saves. It is the message that offers, you see, that removal from a world of doom and tragedy and brings one into the blessed reception of a life fitted for God that's consistent with His will and that seeks to please Him. I suppose it could be noted, Paul to the Corinthians wrote, By which also you're saved. The thought of salvation. It's a word, at least in religious circles, that's used quite often, isn't it? Saved versus lost. Well, I think you and I have a deep sense from the presentation of the Bible the seriousness that goes with that consideration. To be lost is eternally serious, isn't it? The Bible portrays for us various pictures and descriptions and sometimes very graphic ones about the state of some who choose to remain rebellious to God. But on the other hand, there are those who are saved, meaning they're delivered from a devil's hell, they're delivered from a life that's separate and apart from what pleases God, and they enjoy a blessed covenant relationship with their Maker. This very day, aren't we encouraged as we reflect upon the Corinthians in that light? By which also you're saved. Look at what's next on the slide. Could I point out then that the doom that the Bible does des describe and declare that we mentioned a moment ago, nobody is forced to be there. It's a choice. Aren't we blessed to have record about some who chose wisely? And you and I, by way of encouragement, can make that same wonderfully lovely choice. In Acts 2, verse 37, 
on that day of Pentecost as Peter and the others who preached that notable and powerful day? Isn't it true that they recognized that they were doomed? But they asked this question, Men and brethren, what should we do? What can we do to avoid this destiny? What may we do? And Peter gave them the answer, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And so, isn't it wonderful, some wonderful news? That news, you see, was such that they could take care of it in response and be found right with God. The Corinthians had heard that message, and they too had replied. They had responded in faith. And you may notice the next point on the slide takes us to the latter part of verse number 2. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you. How vital is it then that you and I keep in memory? We might well begin this journey that we call the one associated to the gospel, but we could falter and stumble and fail. But we've got to keep in memory and continue that journey in faithfulness. That's what the Lord would wish of us. Be thou faithful until death, He would tell the, the congregation that we read of at Smyrna in Revelation 2. The last point in that verse is in this one. Unless you have believed in vain. Aren't we reminded there in a somewhat innocent way how that our faith must be a genuine one? It's not for show. It's not for pretense. It's not for someone else to feel good about us. We believe because we genuinely trust that which God has revealed. And it has magnified itself in such a way that our life is not the same. The Corinthians, you see, weren't to have believed in vain, but they were encouraged to be those who believed genuinely and to trust the Lord identically. What about verse number 3? So far, have you noticed, we still don't know exactly the particular terms of the gospel. We know Paul preached it. We know they received it. We know it saved them. And we also recognize that in it they were standing. But what is it? Let's look at verse number 3, shall we? As you and I think about this gospel, Paul now says, For, would you note with me that the word for is an explanatory word, meaning that he's now explaining some of the particulars which he just had described for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Paul had earlier pointed out he had declared the gospel, and now he reminds them that that message he had preached is one he himself had received. And now we're getting close. That message which is the gospel, the one that Paul had received, and the one that he had delivered to them, he's now about to tell us what it is. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Oh, how sweet it is to reflect upon the fact that this gospel needs to be received with earnestness. And now we're told that Paul himself had received it. Aren't you thankful that you have had opportunity to receive it? Am I not thankful for that same opportunity? And then Paul, with remarkable thrust, says the following, Christ died. So Jesus died. To you and I who would read the Word of God, that's not surprising. But did you notice the reason? 
He died for our sins. He went to the old rugged cross and allowed folks to nail nails into His hands and His feet, shedding blood in pain and in agony and with excruciation. And He did so not for any sins that He had committed, not for any particular worldwide notable errors. He did it for your sins and mine. Our sins is what put Him there on the cross. Could I ask you to think for a moment, what about the force of those nails that held the Lord to that cross? He was the Son of God. He could have come off that cross at any time He wanted. There's no force on earth or otherwise that could have held Him there against His will. But what was the force of the nails? What held Him to that old rugged cross? Could we not say His love for us? He wanted you and me to have access to a message that could deliver us from doom, that could deliver us from a terrible eternity separated from the God that loves us. That's what held Him there. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read, For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. When our Savior died on that Thursday in the spring of A.D. 30, giving His life that you and I might live. Isn't that one of the paradoxes connected to that event? He died that we could live. He shed blood that you and I could live. And sure enough, Paul would say here in verse number 3 how that Christ died for our sins. But that's not the last thing in the verse. He not only died for our sins, it goes on to say, according to the Scriptures. Was this something that surprised the God of heaven? Was it something that brought an element of unexpected character? Oh, absolutely not. Prophets hundreds of years earlier had detailed the fact that the majesty of the God of heaven would intervene in the human family and give His life for the nature of humanity. Isaiah 53 had detailed it in rather notable order. David had said something of it in Psalm 22. The prophet Zechariah had said something of it in Zechariah 13. Those are just some of the passages. But aren't you and I reminded that this is something that was according to the Scriptures? I hope we're each again impressed by the thought that there are people who die all around us every day. You and I know how many funeral homes there are, say, in a hundred-mile radius of this location. And think how many funerals on an average day take place. The fact that death occurs certainly is something with which we're quite familiar. But notice there's something special about the death of this one. He died sinlessly for our salvation, that we might have the opportunity to receive the gospel. Paul, would you tell us what this gospel is? Christ died for our sins. One of the first major elements to be noted. And with that, you may close that slide with me and appreciate that as Jesus' death is detailed, look at the verse that follows it, verse number 4. In that verse, Paul went on to say, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So we've already now given emphasis 
and some detail to the fact the Lord died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And His death is now followed immediately by this, and that He was buried. He was buried. That corpse, that, that body that was the Lord's body in the flesh was buried. I've asked you to appreciate on that slide. You and I know that you bury things that are lifeless. You don't bury what's alive. You and I remember there have been times through the ages that there have been those who claim, well, Jesus never really died. He just fainted. Or He dropped into a coma. May I say, that just isn't so. Those people knew enough to know He was dead. Do you recall the Roman soldier in John chapter 19? He came through and he was going to break the Lord's legs if he wasn't dead. That soldier was schooled enough, educated enough, and experienced enough to know that this man was dead. And in fact, you and I remember that that statement leads us to note this. He was buried. That had been prophesied back in Isaiah 53 that he would be buried, and so he was. But my, you and I know that that's not the end. You see, if the gospel story ended there, how much different would it be than almost any other religious episode? But yet the fact is, verse 4 goes on to say, and that he rose again. Even though he was put in that tomb on Thursday afternoon, when we arrive at Sunday morning, we appreciate the fact that the women came to the tomb and they discovered and found that it was empty. Isn't it true in Matthew 28, 6 that the angelic visitor said, We know you seek the Lord, but He's not here. He's risen. And so it was that we now encountered this joyous piece of news. This information, the Lord's body, He had risen. This verse again reads it like this, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. A moment ago, you and I had given some note that the Old Testament had foretold His death and foretold His burial, but it also foretold the resurrection. Psalm 16 had pointed that out to us in such an amazing and sweetly disposed way. Something happened, you see, 1,993 years ago. That's a long time in many ways, isn't it? 1,993 years ago, at roughly this time of the year, Jesus, the Son of God, was put to death. And on Sunday morning, He rose. Death couldn't hold Him. The shackles and the bonds of death, they just weren't strong enough to hold Him. Romans 1 verse 4 says, By the power of God He arose that Sunday morning, and when He did, that offers the absolute guarantee of the God of heaven to one and all who will cling to Him, that they too will enjoy a pleasant resurrection. You see, the fact is, every one of us are also one day going to be raised. We're going to die if the Lord delays His coming. But we're guaranteed by the Bible that we too will be raised. But the fact is, some will be raised to life, Others will be raised to death. Raised, you see, to a rather uncomfortable judgment. 
Don't you want to participate in the resurrection to life? We're told in the Bible, just like Jesus was pleasantly raised that Sunday, He gives the guarantee to us that we too could enjoy that, that, that beautifully described resurrection. But this verse now points out this to us. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus arose, and there might be some that say, Well, look, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen a cemetery emptied. I've never seen a situation where a body comes back to life. But you and I are absolutely told in the Bible, this happened, and we believe it. You might begin to ask, were there any evidences of this? Can you convince me of it? Allow me to continue reading in verse 5. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Paul, one by one, then proceeded to list a whole host of people who saw him, the risen Lord. This wasn't something just made up. It wasn't just some figment of somebody's imagination. The Lord rose. Many people saw Him. And the Corinthians had access to that evidence themselves. Today, you and I still do. We have the unadulterated testimony of the absolute Word of God, including the facts of these witnesses that saw the risen Lord. May you and I place our unwavering confidence in Him. Only in Him. Have you ever thought of it this way? There are all kinds of religious people who've lived throughout the ages. And you can go visit their tombs. You can go visit where their body was placed. And it's still there. Can't go visit the Lord's place of entombment. Oh, if you do, the tourists in that part of the world are allowed to witness and see certain things. But the fact is, the body's not there. Because He rose. What's the gospel? We've looked at it today. Let me close by noting this final slide. We now know what the gospel is. It centers on these truths. Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, according to the Scriptures. On the third day, He was raised, according to the Scriptures. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And as it's described that way it, of course, emanates directly to a great sense in your life and mine. So that when we obey the gospel, we reenact that which we've just studied. As you obey the gospel, you believe, of course, that Jesus is the Son of God. You repent of those things that have separated you from God, your sins. You confess the marvelous name of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. And then in the act of baptism, you reenact this which we've just studied. The old man of sin is buried, and then you raise to walk a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 At that point, living faithfully till death, you have the blessed promise connected to an eternity in heaven with the Father Himself. To a person, though, who has begun that walk with the Lord. But maybe faithfulness has not been a part of your life. 
you've begun to walk in ways that are not consistent with the teaching of the Word of God. Jesus still loves you. That hasn't changed, nor will it ever. He wants you to be at one with Him. He wants you to come to His side. And He wants, to, in fact, to shower you with the confidence and assurance and blessings that you once had known. If that be the circumstance of your life today, won't you again be convicted of what the gospel is and proceed to make a choice to live in consistency with it? You call that again repentance. As you make confession of those errors, we'd be delighted to carry that sense before God in prayer. We offer an, op an opportunity. We offer this time of invitation. Brother Cale has chosen a song of encouragement, and we'd like to let anyone with the opportunity, if we could be of assistance if we could be of help, if we could be of encouragement today. There's nothing more important than you being able to leave this, this building with a sense of confidence and wholeness with God. Anything less is not the thing that, that certainly would be ideal. If we could help you today in some way, we invite and encourage you to come and at once, while together we stand and while we sing the chosen song.